In a world where fear, chaos, and boredom reign. A world where hope and toilet paper dwindle. Two heroes will stand up and change the fate of us all. On the Dogs of War podcast, Raleigh and Kevin have vowed to restore the glory of the Cleveland Browns by whatever memes necessary. From the creators of Angry Browns fans, the Dogs of War is back for Season 2, a top 10 sports podcast in the country of Lebanon. Our heroes are armed with random movie quotes, the Munilot payphone, and an unconditional love for the Cleveland Browns. 18 seconds left, he's got the snap. Back to pass, up in the pocket, shooting it long and deep, and it's picked off! They got it! Terrence Mitchell's got it! And it's all over here now! They can't take it away anymore! 11 seconds left to go! Mitchell takes the football, he's gonna run it down to the best fans, the most patient fans in the league, right to the dog pound, up and in he goes! It's only been a few days, but we're back. Got a big, big episode here. This is Kevin. And Raleigh. I say, you know, when we started this podcast last summer, we started putting down names of people we want to interview eventually. And the gentleman we have on this episode tonight was always at the very top of the list we made, would you say? Yeah, I don't know how the hell we're going to follow it up. It's going to be a tough act to follow, no doubt. But the legend himself, Mr. Phil Dawson, Brown's legend, one of the best kickers. Yeah, we'll say he's the best kicker of all time. Yeah, best kicker of all time. No sure. questions asked. This is our podcast, our rules, our world. Yeah, let's get into it. We now welcome on the greatest kicker to ever split the uprights on the shores of Lake Erie. One of the most accurate kickers in NFL history, a pro bowler, the man who Josh Cribs dubbed Old Faithful, who spent 14 long seasons as a Brown, the man with the rule named after him, who scored the first rushing touchdown after the team returned in 99, a man who once nailed a field goal against the Rams in 2003 after breaking his left arm earlier in that same game. A Browns legend, the one and only Mr. Phil Dawson. It is no secret that Browns fans survive on hope. So in these uncertain times, the voice of legend Phil Dawson could be the guiding light that we all need. First and foremost, how are you and the family doing Man, we're uh, we're hanging in there like everybody else. Of you know, fortunately, we're all healthy. Uh, you know, given how everything's going, that's the most important thing, right? Amen to that. Uh, do, do you have any uh, do you have any uh, tips or activities that you found yourself doing uh, to try to stay sane during all this? Yeah, I've been down to the ranch once. I'm about to go again, and and I'm going to go shoot something. 
and that's really helped. <laughs> that's awesome. <laughs> no, it's hey, it's in all seriousness. Now I have done that, but I'm not advocating that for everyone. But uh, <laughs> you know, it's it's been interesting. Uh, my wife and I've talked about it. it kind of feels like uh, it was way back in the day when we were kids. Like life slowed down. Kids were at home more, more time around the dinner table with the family. So. Uh, certainly there's some really bad stuff going on out there, but there's been some silver linings as, as well. And if our kids can get a little taste of what life used to be like, I don't think that's necessarily a bad thing. I love that. I love that. Yeah. The, the outdoorsy, the hunters, they've been practicing social distancing for a while. Yes. That's yeah. uh, a safe place out there, but, uh, you know, hey, hopefully we can we can get through this soon. I mean, I'm all for everybody doing their part, and uh, and uh, we're in we're in this together. But man, I, I, I we need those scientists to uh, be the smart people that they are and figure out uh, some therapeutics and get a vaccine coming so we can all get back to to life as we know it. Amen to that. So, as a retired Browns legend, what's the what's the Sunday experience like now? Are you going through the, uh, do you have any game day rituals? Do you suffer from the chronic anxiety experienced by us common folk? You know, I, going into it, I, I swore I wasn't going to watch much football. I was, I was pretty footballed out, just needed a little break. I mean, these were the things I was telling myself. And then uh, that, didn't, that didn't go that way. I mean, every Sunday, <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> direct TV, Sunday NFL ticket, waiting for the brownies to come on. And I literally watched every snap of every game and uh, just lived and died like I had never left. He tried to get out and they pulled him back in. That's it. our life. That's it. So I know you get asked about this all the time, but Cleveland fans, especially us, can't get enough of the famous snowball. Yeah. So for those of you listening who've been living under a rock, December 2007, we went into the Buffalo game in Cleveland with a record of eight and five. The Bills were right behind us at seven and six. So we were both fighting for, for playoff spots here still. We won eight to nothing, which is really the most Brown score of all time. But the reason we won is thanks to a pair of field goals by this man right here. One of them off the crossbar, if I'm remembering correctly, and also a, a bad snap that turned into a safety. So first, it, it, if I were you, and Romeo told me to go out there and kick in those conditions. I think it was, what, 40-mile-an-hour gusts of wind, two inches of snow on the ground. I would have just walked out to my car and driven home. But that's one of the many reasons why I'm interviewing you right now. It's not vice versa. So for the billionth time, I would just love – can you relive those two snaps? Just, I mean, what, what was going through your mind when you look up? I, can you even see the goalpost? I mean, you're, it feels like everyone's just about to blow right off the field. No. Well, you'll be happy to know that in pregame, you know, it's been well documented that how, how I had a meticulous kind of pre-flight checklist, if you will. And so you can talk to anyone who ever spent any time with me. I mean, it was down to the minute how I conducted myself in pregame. And I can remember it being so ridiculous that day that after about six kicks, I literally just walked off the field and went back in the locker room. So I almost did get in my car and go home because, but what I was, what I was telling myself was it's doing me no benefit to be out here warming up because every kick was different. I mean, I'd have, I'd have one kick blow 20 yards to the right. 
30 seconds later, I'd have a ball blow 30 yards still left. I mean, there was no rhyme or reason to any of it. So I literally just went back in the locker room and I said, I'm just going to go have fun. Like I'm playing football in my front yard today, whatever happens happens. And in a weird way, that decision freed me up to go out there. And that first, that first field goal down on the dog pound in, I mean, the wind was blowing so hard. It was coming in my right ear hole of my helmet. I mean, I can still remember hearing it whistle in my helmet. Yet you look up at the uprights and they're pointing to the right. So I have, I have wind coming from the right into my helmet, yet the flags on the uprights are pointing to the right. So who knows where the wind's going? So I just, you know, I told Dave, I go, I don't know where to aim. Here comes the snap. I just kick it and it goes right down the middle. And I get all this credit for being this mad scientist who knows all the wind directions. And I, I had no clue what I was doing. <laughs> was just, just... Clue what I was doing. And then the long one, I, I you know, I've told people uh, uh, since that the only reason I think Romeo sent me out there, it was a 49 yarder <laughs> was you couldn't see the yard markers. There was so <laughs> much snow on the field. I don't think he knew how far it was. I really don't because had he known it was 49, I don't think anyone tries that field goal, but because we had no idea where the ball was. I mean, you can go back and watch tape. I had to walk off eight yards from the line of scrimmage to figure out where the spot was for Dave to hold the ball. And so that's how crazy it was on that day. And in fact, i messed something up. We cleared off a little spot and then I, I think we called the timeout. And that gave – Dave sat there, he goes, Phil, I think you messed up. And so right the last minute after the timeout, we're clearing a second spot for the hold. And that did allow us, you know, a little bit of benefit to dig out and, and, and have a little spot. But, I mean, good grief, 49 yards, digging out a spot to kick out of. You're not sure that your head coach even knows how far the kick is. I mean, if there's ever a time to just go let it rip and who cares, that was it. And once again, uh, the ball curved and bounced off the stanchion and went in and place went nuts. And I, I still have people giving me credit for knowing exactly what I was doing. And I, <laughs> promise, I knew nothing what I was doing that day. That Just close your eyes and pray. That gave me chills. This is awesome. <laughs> but I did say after that game, you can go back and watch the press conference. I said, I think this was the first home game since I'd been – with the Browns since 99 that I felt like when people thought about the Browns coming back to Cleveland, this was the kind of game they dreamed about. Not only was it crappy weather, but it was at home. As you mentioned earlier, both teams were fighting late in the year for a playoff spot. It was a meaningful game. And so when you mix all those things together, I think that's what made that game so memorable for me. It's just stereotypical Cleveland football on the shores yep. of Lake Erie, 40 below zero, 10 feet of snow against a, a fellow, you know, grinded out fan base team like the Bills. It doesn't get any better than that. Except, yeah, of course, go, if you're playing. We go home with the win, and then we find out that Buffalo can't even fly out. They had to spend the night, so that made it even better. <laughs> Sweet victory. Yeah. So speaking of brutal conditions, you know, a lot of people say Cleveland is the toughest stadium to kick in. But, I mean, as we just discussed, you diced those wins like a knife through hot butter. In your opinion, what are the toughest stadiums to kick in? Well, Cleveland's definitely one of them. The, the thing we have going for us uh, in Cleveland is Chris Powell, our, our grounds crew 
chief, he does such an amazing job with our field. That's one less variable a kicker has to, to deal with. Uh, and since I've left, they've closed in some of the open corners that used to be there. Y'all know that better than I. I've only been back one time. Uh, but some of the – I would assume some of the wind currents aren't quite as strong as they used to be with those corners being closed in. But uh, it's still one of the most difficult uh, – that whole Great Lakes region. Uh, <laughs> Buffalo is extremely difficult, but it has field turf going back to the footing variable so that that makes buffalo somewhat manageable although you're going to get a horrible wind uh i've always said chicago was the most difficult you get the wind off the lake just like cleveland does obviously a different lake however you have the worst field uh known to man i mean soldier field this is no lie and i used to joke with the guys every year because we'd go there in preseason every year and play but three hours before the game when I'm out on the field trying to figure out what I'm going to do that day, some dude doing community service for drunk driving <laughs> or something like that is literally driving the lawnmower, knowing, <laughs> knowing the field. Cause, cause soldier field is owned by the city of Chicago. Yep. It's like their parks department. So you don't really have a grounds crew guy. You just got <laughs> some dude riding a lawnmower and you could watch the mower go by and the blades on the mower were so dull it would just push the grass over. It didn't cut anything. It was like the worst haircut you've ever gotten. And so you'd have this long grass kind of clumped up like playing golf and hitting the ball in the rough. And then underneath the, the dirt felt like concrete. And so you had no footing. And then on top of that, you had the wind, you had the cold, you had all the stuff. So I've always said Chicago was most difficult, but that whole Great Lakes region, you go, go up to Green Bay, not a great place to kick. Uh, and then once you get outside of that region, you know, I was, I was really surprised my first year in San Francisco at Old Candlestick Park. Uh, extremely difficult to figure out what the wind's doing. But once again, what are we noticing? It's all stadiums on water. So hmm. if you find a stadium that's on water, that's generally not a good day for the kicker. You brought up the, the groundskeeper. Now, was that the same – or the head of the, of the field? Is that the same one that also put up the, the legendary rumored secret flag yep. in the one corner? He did it. I used to wear him out, man, for all week. I'd be calling him. I mean, he was my, he was my secret weapon. Uh, I got a lot of credit for all the research I did, and I did spend a lot of time preparing for the weather and the conditions. But Chris Powell was one of the guys that I consistently contacted to – let you know tell me what's going on down at the stadium because you know we're down in Berea all week we d we're not at the stadium during the week so I I'd have him kind of give me daily updates what to expect so that when I showed up Sunday I had half a chance to do my job Wait, does Siebert know this we gotta make sure he's utilizing this <laughs> I'm sure he does I'm sure he does yeah okay. we're here to help the team in whatever way we can so. speaking of of newer Browns like Raleigh just brought up Siebert uh, draft coming up for the first time in, well, I think my life. We have a quarterback that we're comfortable with. Uh, we got the, the number, 10, number 10 pick in the draft. Who do you got us taking? Or what position do you think we take? Man, I'm, a, I'm the last guy to ask that. Uh, you'd, like, <laughs> you'd like to think no, we at, are. At, at 10 you can get a really good football player. Uh, I, I kind of have a unique take on the draft, uh, and I don't mean to minimize the importance of top the top tier talent because obviously there's tremendous guys uh, coming into the league, but 
I think I get more excited about the mid to late round guys because that's really, and I know it's kind of a cliche, but I promise you it's the truth. That's where your team's built. And, uh, you know, I come from a special teams background and I, you know, the kind of guys I hang out with, we call them the four phase special teams guys, kickoff, kickoff, return, punt, punt return. You know, that's going to be 20, 25 plays a game where there's tremendous amounts of field position that are exchanged each time the ball is kicked. And you've got to have guys that can go out there. And they only get one shot. They got to make the most of their opportunity and they can really impact the game. And so as much attention that goes to these top, you know, 10, 15 picks in the draft and they've earned the right to be in those positions. I think your team is really built in those mid to late rounds. And so uh, I'll, I'll let someone else give you their professional expertise <laughs> on top tens, but uh, you know, when you get to day two and day three, you're looking for football players. I think those are the kinds of players that the people of Cleveland tend to uh, bond with the most. Oh yeah. And uh, I think that'll be the part of the draft that I really tune into. The grit. Yep. So in a prior interview, you were comparing, uh, and I'm paraphrasing you here, but uh, you were comparing putting uh, a par putt to kicking. Now you yep. never walk away from making a par putt very excited, implying that the kicker needs to do their job. Yep. Hearing this alone exemplifies one of the many differences between us because when I make a par putt, I am jacked. It sounds like you're a good golfer. What's your golf game like? It's good enough. Do you have a handicap? Yeah, I do, but I haven't played in a long time. You know, my back isn't what it used to be back, you know, when I was a young man. But uh, I can play a little bit. But I, I think what I was talking about in that quote, they were asking me about preseason games. <laughs> and and uh, what I was trying to say is, you know, you can go through all preseason and make every kick and no one gives a crap because they don't count. You know, so it's you go through all that stress and preparation and go out there and perform, and there's really no reward. So it's kind of like making a par putt. <laughs> well, I know. I guess the point I was uh, getting to is that I'm trying to get a feel of it. if you're a golf addict or do you, you haven't played in a while, but what kind of yeah, game? I got, I, traditionally, I've played a lot of golf. Uh, the thing I've learned in retirement, though, uh, you can't have a lot of hobbies believe it or not, and still be a family man. So my, you know, my one hobby that kind of trumps them all is uh, hunting. So my wife is gracious enough to let me kind of disappear during hunting season. Uh, so what I kind of understand to be the, the arrangement now is when hunting season's over, I'm around the house helping out doing everything I can. So I, it's harder to disappear for six hours and go play around the golf. That's um, fair. Yeah. So you heard it here first, guys. That's spoken like a true plus two handicap, Phil Dawson. <laughs> <laughs> so you're just talking about preseason. And one of the things I'm interested in, and I know a lot of people are asking about this too, you know, when you think about training camp and practices, the things you see on TV and the highlights are the offense running plays, all right? So I guess from a kicker's standpoint, special teams perspective, can you take us through what training camp and what practice days during the week looks like for kickers? I mean, from, again, us armchair quarterbacks and football players, I bet you just, are you going out and you kick 100 field goals and, and that's your day? Obviously, easier said than done. But I guess I'd love to hear what that routine is like. That's a great question. I don't know that I've ever been asked that uh, with someone who actually wants to answer, believe it or not. It's usually the, what do you do, ha, 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 kind of thing. But, uh, you know, there's a, believe it or not, there's a lot of organization that goes into it. Uh, 
you will not, most kickers will not kick three days in a row. Uh, and so what you try to do is you, you got to figure out the, the special teams coach's install plan. What is he, you know, what phase of the game are we going to focus on on that given day or that given practice? So what days do I need to be ready to roll? Then you coordinate with the strength coach. When are you going to get your lifting in so that it doesn't interrupt or interfere with your kicking practice or what the phase of the game that your special teams coach is wanting to hit that day? So generally, uh, for me, it was two days on, one day off kind of rotation. Uh, there's no real set rule why you don't want to go three days in a row. I mean, I certainly did that earlier in my career. But in order to you kind of build up quality practice after quality practice, yet not get your legs so fatigued where you, you waste, uh, you know, valuable practice time and kind of practice bad habits with a, with a dead leg. You know, I found that if you, if you take off at that third day, and that doesn't mean not do anything, that just means don't kick on that uh, third day. Uh, that seemed to work best, but there was, you know, you're, one day you may be working on a lot of kickoffs, so that reduces the number of field goals you may hit that day. You may have another day where you're primarily focusing on field goals. And, you know, this thing, there's got to be some room to, to adjust. I mean, maybe your right hash kicks are starting to struggle a little bit, so now you want to commit more time to right hash kicks. Uh, whatever the case may be, it's kind of an ongoing ongoing deal and then there's a period where you got to work on all your specialty kickoffs you know not every kickoff is just haul off and hit the thing as hard as you can I mean you got we call them sky kicks you know the high short ones or I even did stuff where you know I disguised my steps where the team thought I was kicking to the right because every special teams coach studies the other kicker steps so I'd make it look like I'm going right then I'd go back to the left I'd work on my line drive kicks I'd work on all my different onside kicks like when we got to Northcutt at Tennessee that year. I mean, that's a ball that I probably hit 3,000 times before we ever called it in a game. So there are countless situations and types of kicks and types of scenarios you work through on the side, uh, never knowing if they're actually going to come up in a game, and that's kind of the life of a kicker. Uh, you do all this work, and it comes down to 25, 30 kicks in a whole year. So you got to be disciplined, and you got to have kind of a method to your preparation so that when these special moments do show up, uh, you're ready to roll. And, and, you know, everyone talks about, you know, the, the snow game. I can remember, I can't tell you how many times the team would be practicing inside because uh, there was snow outside on the field and I would still be outside kicking in the snow because I wanted to be prepared in the event that we ever had a game in the snow. So, yeah, we get a little more free time than the other guys, and I understand all the joking and all that, and it's well-deserved in a lot of cases, but uh, there's a lot of work and stuff that needs to be done so that you can do your job when your team needs you. Yeah, but how many of those guys joking around would want to be the one out there who, you know, the game is tied or, you know, this kick is to win the game and have to go out there and be the sole person that, you know, wins or loses that game? Yeah, I can't tell you how many times I'd have, like, a left guard come up to me after a game winning kick and talk about how nervous he was just to get his block on that play, uh, much less trying to kick the ball. So yeah, that, that's a running joke. And you know, when guys would ever, whenever guys would give me a hard time, Oh, I wish I was the kicker. You know, usually they do that in training camp when they're out there banging around and I'm over on my own field kicking. I get it. But I would come back at them when they'd say, I wish I was a kicker. I'd say, boy, I wish I had your paycheck. 
And uh, that, that generally shut them up pretty quick. <laughs> you talked about one more thing on that. You talked about the specialty plays. So I want to go back real quick to, like I said earlier, the first rushing touchdown in the new era, you know, 1999 Browns was you. So one of the, you know, I think lost in all of that was how incredible a touchdown celebration you and Gardaki had. <laughs> you guys, you guys did not. And for anyone listening, go back and watch the YouTube video runs in and the celebration you Gardaki set up you guys it wasn't even you didn't skip a beat it was just instant how long did you practice that so that's a great story so we've been practicing the fake itself for a number of weeks believe it or not and then it finally got to the point where the coaches felt comfortable calling it in a game and so we we were literally standing around on a saturday day before the game we asked Coach Wisenhunt, who was our special teams coach back then, you know, what's the situation in the game that we're, we're looking to run this? And he said, believe it or not, it's going to be a really short field goal kind of down, down in the red zone. Okay. So you don't know if that situation is going to come up or not. Well, sure enough, in the game the next day, uh, we go out for a field goal attempt, and it's like from the five-yard line. So here we go. We know the fake's up. Well, when, when Wiz and Hud on Saturday had told us that, you know, Chris goes, man, it, we got to do something if we score. And I said, all right, I'll score. You come running around. I'll toss you the ball and you punt it in the, punt it in the stands. He goes, sweet. And that's literally, <laughs> that was it. We didn't practice it. We didn't talk anymore about it. When the situation came up the next day in the game, when we're running on the field, it wasn't like, hey, remember, come running around. I'll toss you the ball. You punt and sit. There was nothing. So we, we call it. We go out there. I score. I'm on the ground. And I remember, oh, yeah, Chris may be running over. So I jump up and I look. And sure enough, here he comes running. <laughs> and I toss him the ball thinking he's going to catch it and then punt it in the stands. Well, I toss it in such a way, once again, I get credit for this beautifully planned deal, but it, it just kind of happened. The ball, as I tossed it, just turned perfectly like Chris would have dropped it himself. And so rather than catching it and punting it in the stands, he just punts it straight out of the toss I gave to him. And it was this awesome celebration. And we both got fined from the NFL. <laughs> uh, and Mr. Lerner, not Randy Lerner, Mr. Lerner, Al, Al. owner. And we, after we got fined for it, uh, we walked into to work the next day, and there were two envelopes in each one of our lockers, and he, he had the amount of our fine in cash sitting in an envelope with, with a little note, good job. So That's outstanding. That was pretty cool. So I'm not sure if, uh, if you're the practical joke or prank type, but do you have any stories of a – well-executed locker room prank, whether it was executed by you or somebody else that oh, you'd yes. be able to share with us? Yeah, I got, I got plenty. Probably the, the one I'm most proud of, uh, y'all remember Derek Frost. He was our punter yep. uh, for a couple of years, was my holder. Uh, Derek was settling in a little bit as a young player in the league, starting to get established. And so he uh, mistakenly felt confident to start kind of razzing me a little bit. Ooh. And so I kind of let it go and didn't react and literally let about two months go by. And he completely forgot that he had kind of been giving me a hard time about this thing. Well, first big snowfall comes 
and Derek's, you know, baby was, he had a Chrysler 300. Remember those? Oh yeah. And like he's always washing it. It's always just immaculate, blah, blah, blah. Well, I, he's in, he's somewhere and I go in his locker and I get his keys and I pull his car to a remote part of the player parking lot. And I then pay our Chris Powell and his guys, our, <laughs> our lawn guys to take these you know, snow plows and plow all the snow from the player parking lot. And we buried his car. I mean, completely buried it. Couldn't get to it, couldn't access it. And then on top of it, then I had the video crew. See, this is why you don't mess with an older player because we have all the resources <laughs> in the building. So I had the grounds crew bury his car. Now I put his keys back in his locker. Now I have the video crew with tape rolling in the parking lot when it's time for us to leave work so that we could document Derek's face when he comes out and he can't find his car. Then he finally puts it together. He throws a fit. Well, guess what we watch in the team meeting the next morning in front of the whole team. Sorry, rookie. Yep. That, was, think, one, that was one of the better ones. I think my favorite part of that is you didn't wait a day or two. You waited numerous months to make yeah. him pay for his treachery yes. and that's just fantastic yeah that was that was i'm proud of that one so can you think back to your first big splurge purchase as a pro athlete you know the first cool thing you bought when those pro paychecks started coming in yeah my wife's wearing it on her finger <laughs> that's a great answer i'm still paying it off he's a professional yeah it, it was uh thing you know it was it was such a blur you go from being a college kid playing video games in the dorm and then all of a sudden you're in the NFL trying to make a living and get that first paycheck I will tell you a funny story when I was with the Patriots my rookie year uh my locker was right next to Drew Bledsoe's Ooh. and this is when Bledsoe was the man and uh I remember you know there was no direct deposit back then you just got a paper check I mean I literally would mail my checks home from Massachusetts to my mom in Texas so she could put them in the bank for me I mean that's how much I'm aging myself but uh I was on practice squad not making a lot of money and you know my check's really small but I'm still proud of it because I had never had over a hundred dollars in my checking account in my life <laughs> and Drew Bledsoe gets his paycheck and he just drops it down and I won't divulge the amount but it had a lot of zeros by it and this was his weekly check and he he just kind of tossed it down on on the bench right next to me and I can remember calling home going y'all are not going to believe this that some of these dudes make this kind of money so that that was a pretty big eye-opener for me that uh, while I was thrilled to be in the league and thrilled with uh, the opportunity to play there was a uh, quite an upside if I was able to stay in it long enough and maybe work my way up the ladder a little bit. So that's actually a great segue to the next question I wanted to ask. Uh, you know, you said that the first big thing you bought on your wife's finger. So I listened to an interview that you did a while back. And one of the things you said was that after football, you promised your wife you'd at least try to explore avenues outside of football. <laughs> so we came up with a few Phil Dawson specific business ideas. And we'd like to hear your opinion of yes, no, or maybe on if you'd ever, you know, hypothetically consider investing in them with two, you know, particular podcast hosts in the future. All right. All Are right. you ready? Are you ready? Number one, Phil Dawson's Creek. It is a lazy river 
with brown and orange inflatable donuts and tropical drinks served in Brown's helmets with TVs playing the snowball on repeat nonstop. Are we talking indoors or outdoors? Cause I'm out if it's an indoor water park deal, if it's Got outdoors, it. I'm totally in. Yeah, out- there's no way this is in Cleveland. Yeah. Okay. Outdoor lazy river. We're going yeah. to Texas. And yes. All right, Raleigh, mark that down in. Uh, next one, Phil's Grills, an establishment selling both mouth and cooking grills. I'm out. <sighs> That's just too hard to say. Phil's Grills. Well, here's one for you then. My mind went to a not so great place, so I'm out on that one. Well, we're screwed on the next one then. Yeah, uh, <laughs> Phil's Chills, the next great ice cream franchise in America. That's a maybe. Or maybe. All right. Mark that as maybe, Raleigh. Uh, next one is Dawson's Dogs, America's Next Great Hot Dog Franchise. Spelled D-A-W-G-S. Yeah, in on that one. And, I've been and, called a wiener before. <laughs> <laughs> and last but not least, so I, it's been documented, we've been saying on this podcast and elsewhere, that it's time for, for, for parents to stop buying just basketball hoops and hockey nets for the backyard. They need to start buying – field goals for their backyard and get the kids kicking when they're young because very few people can do it or at least do it well college scholarships pro football careers are are out there to be had if you can do it so the last idea we had is phil dawson's backyard field goal arena for aspiring young field goal kickers it's a, a a mini not a mini basketball hoop like we had it's a mini field goal set up in the backyard and it's portable totally in boom all right, so we got uh, we got what three of five there with one oh. being a baby. So all right, yeah, good man. Uh, back to uh, well, this one's random, but gotta ask it, and it's deep. Do you have a favorite Mel Gibson movie? Braveheart. Yes. <laughs> and do you have what is your favorite movie? Man, that, that kind of changes. I, I'm still kind. I love the original three Star Wars. Gotta admit it. Like I, I don't dress up in the uniform and go around, <laughs> but I. I love Star Wars. I mean, I think that's that's about as good as it gets. What did you think of uh, the most recent franchise, the episodes seven, eight, and nine? I mean, they're they're good. I, something about the original three. I don't know what it was. Uh, you know, I, my son, my oldest son's totally into it, so it's been fun to you know go to the new ones with him. But uh, th- those those original three, like I said, I'll let them just stand on their own. That's good stuff. All righty. So now we're going to segue into the fan submitted questions. Uh, we put up a, do, do you have Instagram? I do, but I don't even know my, whatever the address <laughs> handle. He's got a burner account. He's got a burner okay. account. I don't even know. So you can put up uh, like a questionnaire for people to answer. And we put up one that said, what are some questions or comments for Phil Dawson? There was an overwhelming amount of people that said, please come back. So just wanted to throw that out there. We tried to sift through the good ones. This one is actually from Pat Muccio from Santa Barbara, uh, one of my earliest childhood friends. He's actually the guy that set up this interview. Um, Shout out to him. I also told him that if he successfully set it up, I would name him the godfather of my firstborn child, which he's Italian. So that's a big deal to him. I got to run that by my fiance. I haven't told her yet. But this one actually may be a sore subject. I don't know. Bottlegate. That was actually the first game that me and him attended yeah. where 
the fans were upset at a call by the refs and started throwing bottles on the field, which is absolutely insane. But we got to ask, what was going on through your mind during that? It, that was crazy. Now, you got to remember, if I that was uh, was that two thousand? I thought it was two thousand and two. Two thousand one. I, I thought it was our seven and nine. Oh wait, two thousand one. We were seven and nine, and we would have yep. played Jacksonville, right? Would have had a chance to go to the playoffs yep. if we won that game. So, whatever, whatever I was trying to say is that we were, even though I've been here two or three years. I was still kind of learning the deal, right? We were all imports from the expansion team. We had heard about the old glory days. We had heard about how Browns fans were so supportive and it meant so much to them. All right, fine. So we're learning. We're still, we're still getting settled in. And then here we are with a chance late in the year to win a game and keep our playoff hopes alive. We get screwed by the refs. Shiverini was involved in the play. I still remember it. And this call by the refs is going to, you know, we have no more chance of winning the game. And I still remember looking up and like seeing Jack Daniels bottles, just here they come. Some of them empty, some of them not. Those were the ones that were a little more scary. And my first thought was, I hope my wife's okay. Cause I mean, there was crap flying everywhere. I mean, we're not just talking beer bottles. Uh, we're talking whiskey bottles. I mean, it was it, everywhere. But I, in the midst of all this chaos, I remember thinking to myself, holy crap, these people really do. Th this goes deep with these people. And uh, as disgusting a scene as it wound up being, I did leave it, once again, talking about the silver lining type thing. And, you know, here we are in the pandemic looking for silver linings. I can remember driving home from that game going, well, first of all, I'm glad no one's hurt, but this could be a really cool place to be if we ever got this thing going because these people freaking care. That's awesome. It's, it takes a lot for a Cleveland person to throw a full bottle of whiskey away. So I know. I know. <laughs> it's alcohol abuse. Uh, Luke from Ohio asked, who was your favorite quarterback in your Browns tenure? <laughs> I know there's not, a, there's not a lot to choose from or anything. So I had a lot of them, obviously. Um, <laughs> uh, I did spend a lot of time with them. I was buddies with Doug Peterson way back when, uh, you know, and then uh, Dilfer, good friend, still a good friend of mine today. So, so is Doug. Uh, you know, I don't know of any that I really didn't get along with, but uh, being the, uh, my first football love was not the Browns. I know that surprised a lot of people, but it was my Longhorns. So I think y'all know where I'm going with this answer. Uh, my, my Longhorn legend, Colt McCoy, yep. uh, probably wins that prize. I love it. Matthew McConaughey? I don't know uh, Matthew personally. Uh, I do know, I can remember a day at UT where he injured himself uh, filming some movie and he came in our training room, whatever. I leave the training room and half the co-eds from the University of Texas were standing outside <laughs> of a football facility waiting for him to come out. So that's when I first learned he was kind of a big deal. You sure they weren't waiting for you? No, not me. <laughs> Joe from Burton, Ohio asks, how superstitious is kicking in the NFL? Some guys 
some guys are very superstitious. Uh, I was a huge routine guy. So call that whatever you want to call it. Uh, you know, I, I wasn't, I wasn't a guy, if my routine got off, I'd completely freak out and know the day was, was screwed from there, but I, I didn't enjoy getting off my routine either. So, you know, I, I think part of the running joke for kickers is all the weird stuff they do. And like I said, a lot of that's well-deserved, but you'd be surprised how many guys at other positions have their superstitions or routines. Uh, but uh, everyone's nervous on game day. And so everyone resorts to whatever means necessary to, to deal with it. Yeah. And um, Tad Millington, not sure where he's from, asked, what was your warm-up music? Or did you have a theme song? You know, it changed through the years. Uh, I was more chill. Uh, when you're a kicker, you can't, you know, you can't rock Metallica for three <laughs> hours and bang your head against the wall and all that. I mean, you kind of got to focus and be under under control. Uh, I listened to, to a lot of contemporary Christian music, country music. Probably my one song that survived all the different years was Travis Tritt, I'm Gonna Be Somebody. I don't know what it is about that song. I can remember hearing it as a little kid. I don't know. It just it helped me kind of dream. And so uh, I would always listen to that one right before I went out to remind myself I was playing a kid's game. Well, we will Google that song and play that at, as an outro at the end of this episode. I was thinking the same thing. Well, Brandon LeSang, not sure where he's from either, poses the question. Now, again, as those of us who don't know anything about the position, uh, how important is laces out as a kicker? Extremely. And, I, it, you know, you can make a kick without the laces being perfect. Uh, there, there's obviously a lot of examples of that. But ultimately, that ball is going to follow where the laces are pointing. So, for example, if your holder gets the ball down and the laces are at 3 o'clock when you kick the ball, sooner or later, while that ball's in the air, it's going to start going to the right. And what people don't understand is, you know, those uprights are 16 or 17 foot, six inches apart. And with wind conditions being what they are, there's a lot of times that 17 foot, six inches becomes six inches. You've literally got to put the ball in a six inch hole for, to make the kick. So if now all of a sudden, at, you know, the ball's going to start moving right that you weren't expecting it to go right, you could see where a missed kick you know, comes in, comes into play. And when the, from snap to kick is generally 1.3 seconds, uh, you, the kicker who's approaching the ball, you're, you're taking your first step as the snapper snaps the ball. So your second step is hitting the ground about the time the ball is hitting the ground with a holder, putting the ball down on the ground. So you've now got one step to see where the laces are and see if the holder is going to get them around or not. And then somehow try to tweak at the last, you know, millisecond where you're aiming to account for the laces. So you can see where this, you hear a lot of times how important it is for quarterback to know receiver and they got to be in a rhythm and understand each other. Well, that's the same for a kicker and a holder. Uh, I was fortunate to have some guys for, five, six, seven years, you know, at a, at a time. And we got to know each other real well. And I literally like Dave, for example, Zastadil, I could tell by how he caught a ball, whether, where the laces were going to be when he got it on the ground. And we had that kind of 
you know, sync going on. And so I think that's why we had the success we did. Now all of a sudden you introduce a new guy who you don't know. Maybe he's a good holder, but you don't know how he does things when the snap's a little off. And now all those calculations get blurry and the results are going to suffer as a result. Anyone who ever questions or makes a joke about the kicker position again, I'm just going to play that clip for them. <laughs> Cause that, that just, that's something else right there. Uh, a couple more questions that we can let you get back to uh, your respective quarantine bunker. Andrew from Shaker writes, who was your favorite Browns coach? And now you're with us for 14 seasons. So you have like, I think 40 people to choose from there. Uh, I'm glad they didn't ask who was my least favorite coach because <laughs> we don't have enough time for that one. But, uh, you know, I really, I really enjoyed Butch. Okay. I thought he brought an energy and a confidence uh, to the organization. Uh, and then I really enjoyed playing for Romeo. I think Romeo was an excellent man, uh, treated his players right. We were actually rolling there for a bit with Romeo. And then there were a few decisions made uh, upstairs uh, that really had an impact on us being able to maintain that momentum. So, you know, in hindsight, I would have enjoyed uh, getting to see Romeo have a longer run and maybe a little more say in some of the decisions that were made back then, because uh, we were, we weren't all that bad with either one of those guys I just mentioned. So, the final question, and it is deep, comes from Anthony from Warren, Ohio. Heads or tails? I was always a tails guy. You and me both. Always. Every coin flip. I used to be a heads guy, but now I'm, I'm on team tails. I'm converted. I just wish everyone, people that are listening, you obviously can't see. We're all we're on some video chat here, but – uh, Phil's executive office here is exactly what you think uh, an NFL legend's office would look like. Just great wood and just frame things everywhere and 100 footballs that all have a crazy story to it, I'm sure. So I'm just bragging that no one else can see this but us right now. I'm very jealous of that room. A lot of memories on that shelf. <sighs> That's awesome. Uh, Mr. Dawson, thank you so much for your this time. Is, this has been outstanding. Truly appreciate it, especially in these uh, times we're in right now. Yeah, I appreciate what y'all are doing. If I can ever help you out down the road, holler at me. I will, and we will. Careful what you wish for. <laughs> Do you have any final thoughts for the listeners out there? Any messages? Anything? Open mic. You're well, I, awesome. you know, first of all, I hope everyone uh, remains healthy. And if you have someone who's sick, I, I pray they, they can get through this quickly. Uh, it's hard to imagine how this is affecting so many people, but we will get through it. And uh, I look forward to the day that football's back. Uh, and I especially look forward to the day when the orange and brown runs back out on the field. So, you know, like I've said, while I was a player, like I said, when I retired, I can't think of a better place on the planet to be when the Lombardi Trophy goes down Euclid Avenue and can't wait to get up there and uh, be a part of that with all y'all. It's burning to the ground. There will yes. be no more city. Yes. Uh, that just gave me chills. Oh, this is awesome. Yeah, Mr. Dawson, thank you so much again. All right, y'all take care. You too. Thank you. All right, bye-bye. Bobby played his guitar on 
on the harder side of town Where it's hard for a poor boy to find the money He had dedication, he had the heart and soul Somehow knew he was born to play People said get a real job, support your family there's no future in the road you're taking He never said a word The dreamer just kept on Late at night you could hear him sing Your heart. 